Well, I uh, echo what Chris said. I'm so thankful for Darby and our choir and the Christmas music that they bring us during this season. I, I have to say I'm always the guy that wants it to start earlier every year. I badger Darby sometimes about that. He couldn't start it soon enough. I, I think some of the most profound theological truths are captured in our songs about the incarnation. So I love Christmas music, even though I'm uh, well aware of the dynamic of what they call Christmas creep, which is not that guy in an elf suit that shows up at your Christmas parties uh, too often. It is that tendency in our society for uh, uh, retailers particularly to play Christmas music earlier and earlier and earlier, almost the day after Halloween it starts because they're well aware that, uh, that if you are hearing the music, you are in the mood for buying and spending and driving up their bottom line. And so we've had a, a Christmas season that has developed that really lasts for a couple of months now in America, but it's not always been that way. There has not always been the concept of a Christmas season. Although Christmas has a, an old tradition and celebration, it was limited to pretty much just a day on the calendar among many other holy days for the church for many years. It really wasn't until the 12th or 13th century that you started to hear even Christmas music. There wasn't such a thing as music that was devoted to Christmas. And so the idea of a Christmas season or Christmas music is a relatively new phenomenon. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until 1426 that you had something known as a Christmas carol, which developed from people who would stand in circles and would sing songs and sometimes dance to religious themes. This eventually was employed by what became known as wassailers, who were groups of people who would go door to door and sing these songs seeking charitable donations because it was thought more agreeable if you offered a song rather than just beg for money. But as the time went on, these developed into well-familiar traditions, people singing carols. It took root across England and uh, spread beyond there into Germany and other places until the Puritans came into power in Parliament and Oliver Cromwell prohibited the celebration of Christmas because he saw it as a pagan festival. And so Christmas celebration actually was outlawed in England in 1645 and Christmas music came to an end. There was no Christmas music, there was no Christmas season, there was no Christmas celebration for 15 years until 1660 when Charles II came to the throne and Christmas celebrations once again were allowed. But still, most of the songs that we sing today were unknown in those days. In fact, most of the songs that we sing today can't even be found in print before the 20th century. The songs that we think of as having these long traditions aren't really associated with Christmas for that long at all. And the songs that particularly are known for Christmas celebration today are, are all written probably in mostly the last 25 years. In fact, the most streamed songs for Christmas, the top five uh, is uh, 
Number five, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Number four, Santa tell me. Number three, rocking around the Christmas tree. Number two, last Christmas. And number one, all I want for Christmas is you. All pretty new songs. And one thing that all those songs have in common is they have nothing to do with the birth of Christ. We are, in a sense, repaganizing the Christmas holiday. It is just a celebration for the sake of celebration that has very little to do with the coming and the arrival and the incarnation of our Savior. But this morning, I want to I turn your attention to a Christmas song. In fact, the oldest Christmas song, the very first Christmas song, although it's not one that people normally think of at this time, it's the best place for us, however, to gather our thoughts as we prepare to celebrate this evening and, and tomorrow. It's actually the first song that is sung about the birth of Jesus, and it is sung by his mother. And we find it in Luke chapter 1. In verse 46 through 56, it actually comes as Jesus' mother Mary is visiting her cousin Elizabeth. She has heard the announcement from the angel Gabriel that she is to give birth to the Messiah, to the Savior, and also that her cousin Elizabeth is also expecting And she's expecting John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. So she takes the trip, the long journey, going south to visit her cousin, who is with child. And when she arrives, coming through the door, she sings this song. And you can notice in most Bible translations, it's marked off with indentation, telling you that this is poetical. This is lyrical. This is a song, a song written by Mary. And this is what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he's looked on the humble estate of his servant and behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is Mary's song. This is her celebration of the birth of the Messiah. We don't know when she wrote it. We don't know how she composed it. Perhaps it was on the long journey. Whenever she made her way from her hometown down to see Elizabeth, it would have taken her a week or so to make that journey. And perhaps in the evenings as she was camping out under the stars, she was contemplating and, and piecing together all the amazing things that had just happened to her in the, uh, in the recent days. The visit 
by the angel and everything that he told her and how difficult it was for her to accept and believe the message that she was hearing. And she started to piece all of that together and to contemplate and to meditate on what she knew about God. But whatever it was, she wrote this and she erupted with it whenever she came through the door to visit her cousin Mary. It's traditionally known as Mary's Magnificat, which comes from the Latin Vulgate, which begins in verse uh, 46 with Magnificat Anima Mea Dominum. My soul magnifies the Lord. This is Mary's response to the, to the Christmas story. This is her song. This is what she got out of Christmas. And you can break it down as we look at it this morning into four stanzas that really represent four responses of Mary to this amazing incarnation, this amazing mercy that God had shown to her. Beginning in verses 46 through 48, she delights in God's grace. She delights in God's grace or in His mercy, or you might even say she just delights to be able to worship God for His mercy. Now, we just have to say from the outset that this might, this might strike some people as, as unexpected because because of the influence of Roman Catholicism, many around the world probably haven't contemplated Mary as a worshiper because they primarily think of her not as offering worship, but as someone who receives worship. She's the object of their worship. Roman Catholicism as a worldwide religion is largely a Mary cult. They are devoted to the worship of Mary. They have develop all these unbiblical doctrines concerning her, her immaculate conception, that is to say that she was conceived without sin, the assumption of Mary, the title, the queen of heaven, they position her and depict her on their cathedrals and in their art in some sort of position of authority and sovereignty, sometimes even over Christ himself. All over the place, all over the world, Mary is worshipped. But in this hymn, she's not worshipped, she is offering worship. She is the worshipper of God, who she clearly sees as her Savior. She felt the need for salvation. She knew the threat of hell. She understood her sinful condition. And so she rejoices to know that God has provided salvation for her. You really have here the purest picture of a worshiper. Here is Christmas in his undiluted form, a true, pure form. She teaches us how to celebrate Christmas and how Christmas should be participated in as a, as a worshiper. You can take note just to begin uh, for things here in her, in her rejoicing and in her celebration and, uh, over this grace that has come to her. First of all, she, she says uh, all of this arises because of God's grace in her life personally. She, 
she, she celebrates God as her Savior. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, she says. She's, as I said, mentioning uh, the sort of typical language of someone whose only hope for salvation is divine grace. This is the language of a sinner who recognizes their need for a Savior. There's no sense here that she's any less of a sinner than anyone else. Uh, there's no sense that she is uh, in any way less in need of a Savior than any of us. So the first thing about her worship that we note that is that it rises, it arises out of her deep sense of need and her deep sense of God's grace in her life. Secondly, we can take note of its intensity. She says her soul magnifies the Lord. It exalts the Lord. The, the word is mega luna. Obviously, we understand what mega is. It's a, it's a word for, for magnification, for making something larger. She's mega exalting God, we might say. For, for the sake of uh, sort of musical or, or lyrical purposes, this word is used to indicate a crescendo. She's She's exalting or she's expanding or she's magnifying or amplifying God's name and God's glory. This is the uh, desire of every true worshiper to make God larger and larger and larger in their own heart and mind and then through their lips and with their life. I love what Alexander McLaren says here. We magnify God when we take into our vision some fragment more of the complete circle of his essential greatness. So she's, she's doing that. She has taken some concepts that she's known about God and she's plowed into them in a deeper way and she's looking into them, peering into them until they're taking up her entire view. And then she adds to that, not only that she's magnifying God, but she rejoices. She's overjoyed. She has unspeakable joy. This is a word that's often associated with shouting. So she has, in her own sort of spirit, filled her, her lungs and she has filled her voice with the praise of God. Thirdly, we note that this is internal. She's saying this is all taking place in her soul and in her spirit, her soul is magnifying and her spirit is rejoicing. Don't, we don't necessarily look at those as distinct components of your immaterial person. This is just poetical language. This is a poetical device that is sometimes used, parallelism or repetition, to communicate an all-encompassing element in some way. So she's saying that she is exalting God with her whole inner being. That, that, that this worship is consuming everything inside of her. And it is arising, it is consuming her from the inside out. This is not just external display. This is not just outward performance. This isn't just a set of words or actions. These aren't just, these aren't just rituals that she's going through. This all is coming from what's taking place internally. It's rising from what her heart comprehends and from what her mind understands as she comes to grips with, what, with what's going on in her life. It has, 
It has arrested her attention and transformed her emotions and every part of her inner being now is beginning to erupt with this joy like a, like a massive orchestra. Every string and every valve within her is beginning to align and fill her heart with a great harmony. I don't know if you've ever been to an orchestra performance when you get there early and you hear all of the various instruments warming up and sounding forth and it sounds maybe a bit chaotic and a bit disjointed but as you sit there and listen to all of that noise coming out before long those instruments begin to align themselves they tune themselves and then they align themselves with one another so that it eventually coordinates into this overwhelming and majestic sound that overpowers you. That's what's taking place in Mary's heart. She's starting to think about the things that God has just said to her. And then she's thinking about the things that she's read in Scripture. And then she's thinking about her circumstances and then she's thinking about the future and then all of these various uh, discordant if you will strands in her mind are beginning to align and inside of her now is erupting this praise as she's thinking about all the ways that God is working in profound ways that she hadn't contemplated before. So inside of her now, this, this external, excuse me, this internal eruption of praise, which is exactly what God delights in. He doesn't delight in that external sound that is just simply tuned or aligned with some, some sounds that are entering your ears and some traditions and rituals that you might associate with the Christmas season, even the music. I think about this as much as I like to hear Christmas music and especially when I hear songs about the birth of our Savior and the grace of our Lord played over the loudspeakers, I have to remind myself that none of that is pleasing to the Lord. He's never desired mere outward sounds This is one of the things that he rebuked Israel for. He says, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. God's never desired that kind of outward externalism, but he loves when worship arises in your heart. When you slow down and you set aside all the distractions and you meditate and contemplate on all of his works and his ways and you piece together the tremendous wisdom and power of God as it works out in your life and then in His plan and in His kingdom and in His church. And all of those instruments, if you will, all align in harmony until it is an overwhelming orchestra of praise. This is what Mary is saying. She's saying that this... All of these things that just causes her heart and her mind to magnify God. 
We can also notice that her worship is humble. She says all this is happening because God has looked on the humble state of his servant. It's just incomprehensible to Mary that God would have such condescension, that he would have such regard for such a common girl. She can't, she can't get over the idea that he would even contemplate her. She's not sitting around thinking, well, God could have done so much more for me or so much more to me. He could have done this, he could have done that, or he hasn't done this, or he hasn't done that. God may have given me better this, better circumstances, better house, better family, better husband, better wife, whatever it might be. That's, those are not the thoughts filling her mind. In fact, as she's singing this song, from the outside looking in, there really hasn't been anything to rejoice about. God hasn't changed her social status. She still is a humble handmaiden who is coming from a, a poor and obscure village. Her, her whole earthly life would be essentially lived that way, lived in difficult and strenuous circumstances, sometimes as a refugee, sometimes under threat to her life. Although she would give birth to the king of kings, she would, say, she would stay a pauper. Her entire life, her social status never changed, but her spiritual status did. Just like everyone who believes in Christ, her spiritual status is exalted because of the work of this Savior. And all of her praise, all of her praise is arising out of that. This is the true heart of Worship. It arises out of a deep sense of unworthiness, a deep sense of sinfulness, uh, a sense that you don't really qualify for anything in yourself, for any blessing, for any goodness, for any gift from God. And when God does give you blessing and gift, you're just absolutely overwhelmed. This is, this is the kind of characteristic humility that takes no thought for itself. It is, it is not expecting commendation it is shocked when it receives commendation surprised she is surprised that God would take regard for her lowly estate she's a nobody in her own mind at least socially culturally she's just a handmaiden worthy of nothing capable of nothing the wife eventually of a village carpenter the unlikely mother to the Messiah. That's what, that's what really facilitates this level of worship. That kind of humility. Pride can't produce that. Pride, at its core, competes with God. Pride, at its heart, isn't worshipful, it's not thankful. It is, it is in conflict with the glory of God. It is seeking its own glory. It is focused on itself. It, it is uh, overwhelmed, if anything, by its disappointments, by its sense of, of, of not being rewarded, of not being praised, of not being benefited. 
is fixated on the ebbs and flows of external life circumstances, when life begins to ebb, your attitude and your demeanor and your worship ebbs, your glorying in God diminishes. Your joy comes and goes because it's attached primarily to you and to your circumstances, to the things around you, to the changing dynamics of your life. You can always tell a true worshiper because they can go through all those changes and circumstances with unmitigated contentment and unchanging joy. This is Mary. She has a heartfelt, intense intense gratitude that is bursting forth. She is overwhelmed that she's so highly favored. Overwhelmed because she feels herself so undeserving. That is the spirit of Christmas. Here is Mary wondering how God could have ever noticed her, how God could have ever known her or cared about her or thought of her in some way to be used in this sense, but realizing that he does. And now, having realized how favored she is, she's erupting in praise. So that's the first stanza, just her delight. Her delight in God's grace. But that takes us to the second stanza in verse 49 through 50 where she defends God's holy name. So, so she, she, she starts with her own experience now. And then she connects it with what the Bible says about God. She says there, for he, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So she's going to defend the name of God now because of the grace that has come into her life. She's so amazed at what God has done for her, at this, at this declaration of God's favor toward her, even though None of these things have visibly taken place in her life. She's just amazed at what God has promised to her. She's still, at this point, an unknown girl from an unimportant family, living in an occupied country under an oppressive regime and ruler, probably, as I said, facing a life full of difficulty and, and full of, of danger. If anything the announcement that came to her was going to make her life tougher in the short term. She was now going to be pregnant outside of wedlock. Her integrity and her purity were going to be questioned by people around her. She would live with a stigma from outside society. She would even have to face potential rejection from her betrothed her betrothed man, Joseph. What great things, somebody might say, has God done for you, Mary? But Mary is overwhelmed, not with what has taken place in the past, but she's overwhelmed with what's about to take place in the future. She's praising the Lord in advance for what He has promised. Praising Him for His goodness in spite of the fact that she's still facing hardship. And then she says in verse 50, 
And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. This is, this is her now connecting what has been promised to her with everything that has, she's read about in the Scripture. How God was going to bless, how God was going to provide, how God was going to show His mercy to the lowly, to those who fear Him. This is um, probably her referencing Psalm 103, the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who, who fear Him. This is her now connecting the promises of God that she's read about in His Word with the promises that have been made to her specifically and contemplating how all of that is aligning and all of that is coming together. God has promised that He will pour out, pour out His loving kindness on everyone who fears Him. And as Mary begins to realize what God has said He's going to do for her, she remembers this is what God has always said He was going to do. He remembers his loving kindness. He doesn't forget. His mercy doesn't dry up. It doesn't end. His promises are always brought to pass. They always accomplish what he intends. And as she contemplates all of that, she just says, holy, holy is his name. It is irreproachable. Don't even begin to denigrate God's name. Don't even begin to take away from His glory. This is what God said. This is what God will do. He remembers His promises. He's always true to His word. His grace is unmeasured and unending. This is the true celebration of Christmas straight from the lips of the mother of our Lord. She's going to defend God's name. That leads in verse 51 to 53 a third stanza where she begins then to describe God's ways. As she's thinking back now to what he's done, she gets into details about exactly what she understands from the Word of God. And she does it with a set of contrast, thinking about what God has done. He has shown strength, she says, with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Speaking here about those who walk in their own pride and arrogance, that is to say they're exalted in their own thoughts. They imagine themselves to be smarter than God, wiser than God, more accurate than God. They think of themselves as being more faithful than God. They're proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And she says that God deals with these people eventually, according to his word, by scattering them, by bringing them low. She's reflecting, in other words, not just on her own humble estate, but she recognizes that God, while he is at work in the hearts of the humble and those who fear him, he's also at work in the hearts of the proud, frustrating their efforts and frustrating their life. He takes that then to the social contrast. The oppressors 
are contrasted with the oppressed. She says God has brought down rulers from their thrones or the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. She is just thinking back on the history of what God has done through the lives of men like Moses or David who was brought from the fields with the sheep or Daniel who was raised up from a prisoner to the second in command in Babylon. Now she's contemplating what God is doing in her life and I'm sure thinking about what he's going to do in the life of her son. This mighty king who would be born to a humble handmaiden in a humble village. He would be the one who's exalted and those who are reigning in her own day, the Herods, the emperors, they're all going to be brought low. Third, she she remembers even the economic contrast when she says God has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty-handed. So she's, she's even reflecting on the testimony through the ages and the testimony of Scripture, how God has continually provided for again and again and again those who are His who are needy. And how He has brought down the mighty empires and the rich, sending them away empty-handed, bringing their entire life's work to nothing in a moment. This for Mary is the story of Christmas. This is what the birth of her Savior, her Son, represents. This is the message that she took from Christmas. This is what overwhelms her. That God was sending a Savior, God in human flesh, and He was doing it in such a way to show His power that would thwart all that the world is presently seeking. He's going to reward the humble. He's going to scatter the proud. He's going to frustrate their plans. He's going to exalt the humble. And he's going to bring down those who are exalted. And that brings her to the fourth stanza as she declares God's faithfulness. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. She's now putting all the pieces together in her song, thinking about her own experience, thinking about the testimony of individuals, and now thinking through how God is accomplishing his master purpose through all of this. It isn't just his individual grace shown to particular people through time. This is the fulfillment of a word that God spoke to a man 1,400 years earlier in the life of Abraham. This is, this is uh, God's word given to that man so many years ago when He gave a promise that through him all the world would be blessed through one of his descendants. And now Mary is contemplating on that 
long-spoken promise and how God was wrapping all of these details together and how he was bringing it all to pass in a way that perhaps few people could have comprehended or, or even contemplated, but in the most beautiful and profound way. And she's doing this, celebrating God's goodness, celebrating God's faithfulness, how he remembered his promise in spite of Israel's constant rebellion and sin, depravity, and rejection of him. God never was going to break his promise. Israel deserved it. They deserved to have it broken. They deserved to have God spurn them and reject them. They had given thousands, uh, uh, centuries upon century, over a thousand years of, of evidence and testimony that they were unworthy of this grace, and yet God was still going to pour it out. This is what she means when he, she says that God was going to do this in remembrance of His mercy. Through the darkest of Israel's days, the deepest, the deepest canyons of their rebellion, when things looked so dim, when they worshipped other gods, when they, when they tore down God's places of worship and erected in place of them other idols and shrines and temples, when they expressed their wickedness over and over again, when they were cast off into captivity, they lived under oppression outside of their promised land through so many years. God was still remembering His promise. It was all through that time that Israel was supposed to have faith that God would keep His word, but it should, surely was difficult. There surely were people who doubted and questioned even Abraham, you remember, struggled to believe it. Whenever God gave him the promise, he, uh, he grew impatient for the promise. And instead of waiting on the promise to be fulfilled, he went into his slave uh, who was named Hagar and laid with her and gave birth to a, a child who was not the promised heir. But even he expressed his impatience for God to bring about his promise, in spite of Abraham's faith and in spite of his righteousness, he still struggled to believe. But here Mary is saying, God has done it. He has kept his promise, the promise he gave so many generations ago. And here she is now reflecting on what has come to her. She as a humble handmaiden, has been exalted by the Lord. She, as a humble handmaiden, would be a part of the grand picture of God fulfilling His promise. And it wasn't just about her. In fact, it wasn't even about Israel. It was all about God and His glory. It was all about Him and His glory. Whatever place she needed to, to take, whatever role she needed to play in that grand plan, she was willing to do it. That's what she said when the angel came to her. 
And he gave her the announcement all the way back when she struggled to begin with, wondering how the Lord was going to do this. But when the angel told her that what was conceived in her would be by the Holy Spirit and so she would give birth as a virgin, her response was, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is the best Christmas song. This is the best Christmas song. It's not about snow and it's not about snowmen. It's not about Christmas trees. It's not about coming home after long days away. It's not about chestnuts on an open fire. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about God resisting the proud and giving grace to the humble. It's about God making a promise that some people will doubt, but him ultimately keeping his word. It's about connecting God's grace in your life with the defense of his holy name. It's about being overwhelmed that God could ever show that kind of grace to someone such as us. This is the way Mary celebrated Christmas. This is the way you and I should celebrate Christmas. Should be our heart when we go to bed tonight. Should be our thoughts when we wake up in the morning. When we gather around our celebrations and our dinner tables tomorrow, this should be the words on our lips. I'm overwhelmed that God would show his favor to one so undeserving as me. But holy is his name. Father, we're grateful for this reminder and so thankful for this song. I pray that it would be the song in our hearts, no matter what the tune. Let our prayer, let our internal mind and emotion be erupting with praise. Help us to meditate and to contemplate, to see all the ways that you are working in your eternal plan the way you have worked in creation, the way you worked through Israel, the way you brought about your promise through the Messiah, the way you brought us under the light of the gospel. And you sent those into our life who shared the truth with us. Then we who were so unworthy we, we were brought to the truth. Lord, now let us celebrate with a recognition of your grace in our life. And let us celebrate with a declaration that you alone are the Savior and your name is holy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.